have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 1 through 20, particularly with, with a great emphasis on verses 1 through 16. You'll, you'll probably remember it's the week of the Passover. And what's taken us several months has only been a few days. It's been a week or less. Jerusalem is overflowing with tourists. And Jesus has been betrayed on that Thursday night by Judas. He's been abandoned by the rest of his disciples. And now as we open the scriptures this morning, it's Friday morn. The night was long for him. He was taken before Annas. He was taken before Caiaphas. He's had experienced several versions of, of a kangaroo court. But the Sanhedrin together, the, the 70 uh, the, uh, assembled together, well, actually 71 with the, with the high priest. They've agreed together, as we saw last week, that Jesus should be put to death. And they scrambled for different ways to, to really find grounds to execute our Lord. But they ended up settling on blasphemy. We won't unpack that again or, or re-preach last week's sermon. But when God himself, the second person in the Trinity, shows up, declares himself to be God, they accused him of blasphemy and they sentenced the God of life to death. That's where we pick up this morning. Mark 15, verses 1 through 20. The scriptures say this, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. And now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they would ask. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in their insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him released for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him with a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes. And they led him out to crucify him. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, again we pause and we ask that these scriptures read in our ears would come alive to our minds. 
Father, that they would work into our hearts the truths of Jesus. We would see our Lord and Savior, our King, who will return. Father, a King who's established his kingdom now in the hearts of his church. We pray that we would see him more gloriously this morning. Father, we pray that King Jesus would be received on earth as he is in heaven. We pray that that would begin here in this place. We ask all these things in the name of our good King, Jesus. Amen. Last week, in parallel to the Lord's Prayer found in Matthew 6, we said, may Jesus be honored on earth as he is in heaven. That was our hope. That was our prayer last week. Not just in the hearts of those that are gathered uh, here, but in your own heart. And that that would be, continue to spread, not just in this place, but through all the churches and around the world. That Jesus would be honored, not dishonored, honored on earth as he is in heaven. That's what we've been instructed to pray. That the will of the Father would be done on earth. And it is the will of the Father to honor the Son. We pray that that would take place. And the main idea for this morning, really rising from this text, is very similar. It follows the same line, but instead of Jesus being honored, it's made King Jesus be received on earth as he is in heaven. He's honored in heaven. He's king in heaven. The Father has given all things to the Son. And we pray, I pray, that King Jesus would be received in our hearts as a king on earth as he is in heaven. I intend to walk briskly through the text this morning and to highlight some ways that Jesus' kingdom differs from what we're used to. And in that way, we'll come to understand not just more about Jesus as our king, the one who we should receive in our hearts, but also of his kingdom. We'll finish our time together this morning by joining at the Lord's table, the kingly table that we have been invited to, not because of any work of righteousness that we have done, but because our king laid his life down for his subjects. And so I'll meet you there at the table. Well, let's get started. The Sanhedrin had already met illegally at night, and they had determined that Jesus was worthy of death. Now, not legally worried, worthy of death, but they had determined because of their own sinful desires that Jesus had to be put to death. So they found a way to make it possible. He had had the trouble, or uh, I'm sorry, the Sanhedrin are unable, though, at this point in time to go ahead and execute Jesus. That authority, the, the, the sword, as it were, had been taken away from the Jews. They weren't allowed to, co to commit or uh, to, uh, to uh, have capital punishment. That had been taken from them by Caesar as he occupied Judea. And so according to verse 1, they bind up Jesus and they take him to Caesar's representative, which is Pilate. Pilate's the governor of Jerusalem. You know anything about Pilate, you know that he hates Jerusalem. He hates everything about Jerusalem. And the Jews hated him back. Even for a pagan Roman, which would have been difficult for any Jew to be subservient to. But even for a pagan Roman, Pilate was not a good fit for Jerusalem. He had, he had little patience for the worship and practice of the Jews. In fact, he had defiled the temple once 
and started a riot. And even also, he had stole money from the temple treasury in an, in an attempt to accomplish one of his special projects there in Jerusalem. He was a gifted architect like his father, Herod the Great. But in the area of diplomacy, he was sorely, sorely lacking. And so to say that Pilate had a coarse relationship with the Jews really is an understatement. At any rate, the feeling was indeed mutual. They hated each other. According to the Jewish council, Jesus deserved death, and they wouldn't be able to crucify him. They wouldn't be able to kill him. They wouldn't be rid of Jesus unless Pilate signed off. Unless Pilate actually did the deed. And so now, having determined that he would die in the darkness, now in the daylight they parade him to Jesus or to, to Jesus to Pilate. And there Pilate asks, as he stands before him, he asks of Jesus in verse 2, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus has remained silent for much of his interrogation, much of his arrest, and yet at this point in time he sees a legitimate question. And so he gives an honest answer. Jesus responds, you have said so. It's a little bit confusing in our language as we read that. You have said so, almost as if Jesus is being vague or he's acting a bit squirrely and that's not what's taking place. Jesus is very clearly affirming that he is indeed the king of the Jews. In other words, he's saying, you have said it rightly. It's true. King of the Jews. God's people had been expecting a deliverer. Someone to rule and to lead them ever since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And God had promised that he would send a deliverer. And in line, with that, in line with that promise that God made in Genesis chapter 3, God eventually unified the Israelites under Moses. And he told them that as long as they followed him and obeyed him, that he would bless them and he would guide them. That happened for some time and they rejected the Lord as their leader they demanded that they receive, that they have an earthly king, just as the other nations have. And so God gives them what they want, and he appoints for them Saul as the first king over Israel. You probably know the story. Saul, the, the first king in Israel, actually disobeys. He follows after his own wisdom. He doesn't submit himself to the Lord. And God rejects him, and he doesn't allow Saul's sons to sit on the throne as would have been common practice. But instead, God, in the place of Saul, chooses a young man, a young shepherd, David. A young boy in the field. He chooses him to be the next king over the Israelites. And again, in line with his original promise to Genesis, God promised to David at some point in his life that him... He would not, though he would not reign, his sons would always reign on his throne. Again, that's in the same connection. It's the same person, the deliverer, the Messiah, would also be a king. And he would always sit on the throne of David. And so the Jews were looking for that king. The Jews were looking for that Messiah that would deliver them from their oppressors. And here, Jesus arrives. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies concerning the Messianic king from Genesis all the way to Malachi. He was from the royal line of David. He fulfilled all the prophecies and therefore he could rightly take on that title, the king of the Jews. Maybe you'll remember, it's not Christmas time, 
But maybe you'll remember in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, where the, the magi, the wise men, they show up. And what do they ask? Where, who are they looking for? They followed his star. They've seen it in the east. And now they've come to worship him. Who is he? It's that messianic king foretold all the way from Genesis to Malachi. In Matthew 2, the magi say, where is he that has been born king of the Jews? What an interesting story. Even at his birth, he was seen to be the king of the Jews. There's not been a king in North America for a few years. And yet there's this revived interest in the crown of England as of late. And you could say the interest really never waned in the hearts of many. They've always cared for the, 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 for the crown. But we're asking questions in documentaries and Netflix series and all over. We're asking this sort of question, what sort of king was King George III? Well, I could tell you, he's a man that would kill your friends and family to remind you of his love. That's an inside joke. Maybe you're asking not about King George III, but maybe you're more interested in Queen Elizabeth. And maybe you're listening to all the podcasts and you're watching all the documentaries and the, and the docudramas about this lady's life. And you're wondering, what kind of queen was she? She's reigned a long time. Maybe a better question to be asking this morning as we think of kings would be, what sort of king is Jesus? Does he rule like King George III? Does he rule like Queen Elizabeth? What sort of king is Jesus? And furthermore, what is his kingdom actually like? Though Jesus is bound, abused, and mostly silent, this passage reveals quite a bit about his kingship and about his kingdom. And so as we continue walking through, I want you to keep your eyes peeled for ways that Jesus' kingdom is different than all the other kingdoms that we've read about and encountered ourselves personally. Keep your eyes peeled. How is Jesus' kingdom different? Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? He gets his answer. You have said so. Yes, I am the king of the Jews. But then, the conversation turns. It says the Jews, uh, really in an attempt to pile up all sorts of evidence in the case against Jesus, really trying to tip those scales again, again, not in a lawful manner, they begin to lay it on thick in front of Pilate. They begin to pile up all the things about Jesus, this and that, and, and again, they begin to pray in front of him all these false accusations and things that are just on their face, lies. And yet when Pilate asks Jesus about all these accusations, what does Jesus do? He gives no response. This is in the same vein as we looked at last week. The, 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 the lamb, the sheep being sheared be, be, there is silent, not opening its mouth. And question is the honor of Jesus, but he's blameless. And so he doesn't need to defend himself. He gives no response. When Pilate asked him if he's the king of the Jews, he answered him. But again now. There's no need for him to defend his honor. And what's interesting is that Jesus' lack of resistance, his lack of defense here, really puzzles Pilate. It's interesting because it says it amazes Pilate. This isn't that rare of a thing to take place. Somebody coming before Pilate, 
needing to be executed. Maybe it was the scribes who had done this before. Perhaps they had even captured Barabbas and brought him before Pilate. We don't know. But we know that this situation, the Jews having some sort of a problem, bringing it to Pilate, we know that that's not an out-of-the-ordinary situation. Pilate would know that Jesus would know that his life hangs in the balance. And his defense would help to determine. And so it really amazes Pilate. Why would, why will this man not grovel? Why will he not scramble? Why will he not defend himself? It puzzles. It puzzles Pilate. There's a contrast here. You Maybe you can see it. Maybe you've already noticed it. Pilate's chief concern as he judges Jesus is whether or not he will lose his standing, his favor, his position in that area. And so he's doing what it takes. He's moving his pieces across the board to make sure that he is protected, that he is safe. And in contrast, Jesus is doing the exact opposite. He's not scrambling. He's not defending himself. Pilate really is amazed. He would rather not cause a problem. He would rather not cause a riot. He wouldn't mind sticking it to the the chief priests and the scribes that have caused him so much discomfort this last little bit. So he comes up with a plan. He could come out blameless, hands clean. He'll offer Jesus up. To be forgiven, to be pardoned. He'll offer him amnesty on this day. Apparently in those days it was common for a governor or a king to release or in a sense pardon a prisoner. It was a way of gaining or maybe keeping favor with the common man. It showed mercy on the part of the tyrant and it gave a bit of power to the regular guy. And it was in fact Pilate's custom. And they knew that and he knew it. And at this particular time in this year, he determined, this will be what I'll do. I'll offer Jesus up if that's what the crowd would like. And so he does. Perhaps uh, uh, Pilate begins to think that this is the opportunity to satisfy the crowd and, and disregard the request of the Sanhedrin. And he rightly assumes that their motivation is all about the envy of the Sanhedrin. And so he presents a choice in a sense. How about I let Jesus go? I'll let somebody go. How about Jesus? He's the king of the Jews after all. It's interesting. Jesus or Barabbas is the question. Barabbas, when broken down, the name means son of the father. You're not surprised by that, right? We all know Abba means father. And Bar means son of. Of, and so Barabbas means son of the father. It's ironic. There's two sons of the father that are being presented that are really hanging in the balance before the crowd. Who will they choose? Which king? Which son of the father will they choose? Will they choose Barabbas, the insurrectionist? Will they choose Jesus, the one who claims to be the king of the Jews? Perhaps it's even more interesting that historians argue that Barabbas was actually Barabbas' last name and that his first name was Jesus. You might think, well, that's kind of odd. Jesus was Jesus. Barabbas wasn't Jesus. Well, actually, if you think about it, uh, Judas, I'm sorry, Jesus is a very common name. It's the same name as Joshua. We know that 
Jesus was not the first Joshua. There's been many before and many after. So it's a very common name in these, in these days. And so it's interesting, a name that means salvation. Two men claiming to be the son of the father, kind of hanging in the balance. We don't know much about Barabbas, but we do know that he was an insurrectionist. We can assume that the insurrection had actually taken place maybe that week even. Jew, uh, the, the Romans didn't make a practice of dragging out sentences, and especially when they were a capital offenses. They didn't want to bankroll all the, the Jewish insurrectionists. So if they were deserving death, they would make sure that they met that end quickly in order to save budget. Make sure that the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the purpose was, well, executed quickly. And so it's probable that, that Barabbas' offense had actually taken place the same week, which goes on to show that uh, how volatile the Passover time was there in Jerusalem. And how frustrated Pilate probably would have been that they have woken him up so early on this holiday. But at any rate, Pilate thinking he's found a way to, to get the crowd happy and to free Jesus. He says, would you like me to free Jesus? What do they say? No, give us Barabbas. Give us the murdering insurrectionist. We would prefer him. Jesus, the king of the Jews, the one the crowd welcomed to Jerusalem just a few days prior, or Barabbas. Again, he rightly assumes that the Sanhedrin is operating out of envy. And he believes that the crowd will still side with this peaceful Jesus. But through bribery, lies, and natural passions, they've raised the crowd up into a fury and they all begin to shout for releasing Barabbas. Pilate asks in verse 12, Then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? What do you want me to do with him? And in that fury, the crowd shouts, crucify him. Pilate says to him in verse 14, to them in verse 14, why? What evil has he done? They shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. It couldn't be reasoned with. It's exactly what Pilate had feared. And as the crowd grew louder, Pilate grew more anxious. He couldn't afford another Jewish revolt on his resume. He needed to keep the peace. He needed to keep the crowds happy. And so for his own self-interest, he delivered Jesus to be crucified. After having scourged him, softened him up. This morning I want to offer to you as we look at this text and we consider it, I want to offer to you three ways that Jesus' kingdom differs from all other kingdoms. Three ways. In John's gospel account of Jesus before Pilate, Jesus further explains, yes, yes, I am the king of the Jews. I, you've said so. And he goes on to say, my kingdom, though, is not of this world. It's not of this world. Nor is it like anything else that we experience in this world. We see this clearly in the contrast between Barabbas and Jesus. 
One is a physical freedom fighter. And the other is a spiritual freedom fighter of sorts. One fights for the seen. The other fights for the unseen. And so the first observation that I want you to see, the first difference in Jesus' kingdom and Jesus as a king is this, that Jesus' kingdom prioritizes the spiritual over the physical. Jesus' kingdom prioritizes the spiritual over the physical. Barabbas, Barabbas was likely a man who would kill you or anyone else for a chance to be free from Rome. He was a man who saw only what was right before him. He lived for the physical. In a sense, he represented freedom in the now. And in stark contrast, we find Jesus, a king who instructed his disciples to go the extra mile for Roman soldiers. A king who taught his followers to pay taxes to people who imposed themselves over a free nation. And he even instructed his followers to pray for those oppressive rulers and leaders. And in reality, but also figuratively, the crowd was presented with a choice. Freedom in the physical, blessings in the physical, hope in the present, or freedom in a spiritual sense in the future. There's real temptation there as you consider the balance there. What's represented between these two options? Barabbas, so-called son of the father, salvation perhaps from Rome, or Jesus, salvation in God, and freedom in the spiritual. It's a tough call. Even the disciples are tempted here. They too want physical freedom from oppressive Rome. And they themselves were tempted to prioritize the physical over the spiritual. Constantly while Jesus was teaching, they would miss the point. They they wouldn't look beyond to the spiritual, to the deeper meaning of what Jesus had come to accomplish. And they would get stuck in the physical. Wanting then they themselves to sit on the throne next to Jesus in the kingdom physically that they thought he was setting up. They were tempted to prioritize the physical over the spiritual. What about you? In a sense, as we consider Barabbas and what he has to offer us, the crowd, and we consider Jesus, the true son of the Father, the king of the Jews, and what he has to offer us, who do you choose? And not generally, but on a daily, minute-by-minute level. Who are you choosing? What do you want most? What do you long for most deeply? Do you long for comfort? Do you long for health? Do you find yourself desiring physical wealth? Physical blessings? Do you find yourself like Asaph, the psalmist, Frustrated because others around you who are not walking with God are experiencing blessings in the here and now while you go without. Maybe as they thumb their nose to God, they experience great health and you are in pain. You find yourself longing for 
those physical blessings more than the spiritual ones. You'd rather have deliverance, perhaps, from the physical oppression than the spiritual one that is far more real and dangerous. Psalmist Asaph, he's struggling, he's frustrated in Psalm 73, and he realizes that he's kept his eyes on the physical. He's seen the here and now and only that. He's only seen what is seen and he's not looked beyond to what is unseen. But then in the psalm he realizes, wait a minute, the spiritual blessings that I have in God will outlast any physical blessing that has been given to these pagans who run and turn away from God. Listen as Paul reminds us of the benefits of Jesus' kingdom. None of which are physical, but all of it exceedingly more wonderful than any physical advantage we could have apart from Christ. Consider the words of Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 10. I'll read them slowly. Ephesians 1, 3 to 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with, listen, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy. He chose, church, that you would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined, he predetermined us for adoption to himself as the sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, not our will, not our desires, his. He's done all of these things. It, goes, it gets better. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood. We've been purchased back to God through the blood of Christ. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of Jesus' grace, which he lavished upon us. He liberally gave to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. What is the mystery of his will? That we can look beyond the here and now. That we can look beyond suffering. We can look beyond the temporal and see the eternal. What a blessing that we've received from God. And all of this is through Christ. It says, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's kingly language. It's kingdom language. That the Father would unite all things in his plan, all things in heaven and all things on earth, that he would unite them back to the Son under his rule. It's easy for us to get caught up in the, the here and now. It's easy for us to get caught up in the physical. And yet what Jesus represents, the freedom that he offers is so much greater than that. If you're in Christ, you already have every spiritual blessing. The spiritual over the physical. This is what we know about the kingdom of God. This is what we know about the kingdom of Jesus. It prioritizes the spiritual over the physical. And we would do well too. There'll be less frustration, more joy, less confusion if we look beyond the here and now and we look to the eternal. 
realizing that we already have been given every spiritual blessing. Another area that, that Jesus' kingdom differs from all other kingdoms is that it's marked with justice and not corruption. That sounds really, really good, doesn't it? Jesus' kingdom operates with justice and it rejects corruption. It's impossible. Look through history and you will find corruption on every level of every government in every era of history. It's true that some models of government address corruption in, in better ways than others, but it's still unavoidable. It's undeniable. Corruption permeates human government. You can say amen to that. The human heart is corrupt apart from Christ. And so any human government, any form or fashion will itself also be corrupted. And we clearly see this in the life of Pilate. In this advanced system of government, Pilate stood as not just the military leader, not just the governor, but also as the judge. He had been established by Caesar himself with the, with the goal of meeting out justice in this land. And yet when it came time for Pilate to act justly, he bent to the will of the people wishing to satisfy the crowd. What a sad, sad, scary testimony. To find yourself with the foundations of the righteous government being eroded, nobody's safe. And the irony of, of this part is that Pilate, listen, Pilate acting dishonestly wishes to appeal to the corrupt mob and he, sentence is, he sentences Jesus to death. And in contrast, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the true king, not a faux king, not a puppet. He's the only righteous man who ever lived. He had come himself to satisfy the just demands of a holy God, which were against the entire world, including the mob. And yet instead of bending to the will he bends to, of the mob, he bends to the will of the Father. Instead of acting corruptly, he lays his life down in an attempt to cover the corruption, to amend the corruption of the mob. Jesus' kingdom operates with justice. It rejects corruption. It remediates corruption. But the irony does give us a window into the kingdom of Jesus, right? It allows us to see the type of king that he really is. He's not the king that, that says two wrongs make a right. We'll fix this by, 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 by sinning more. We'll operate in underhandedly and corruptly for a little bit, and then we'll get things settled just going right, and then we'll continue to go. That's not the way that King Jesus works. And that's not how his kingdom operates. He never misleads. He never bends to the, mil, to the will of the mob he always does what is right in every single situation. And, and even though we may be corrupt, and each of us evildoers in the kingdom of God, it still is satisfying. It still feels more safe with a king that will rule justly than a king that does whatever he wishes. 
That's how it works in Jesus' kingdom, though. The standard is the will of the Father. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you're taking notes, this would be a great place to park this week and meditate. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. The Apostle Paul, really, I believe, considering the kingdom of God and considering King Jesus and his character, he says this. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The Apostle Paul says that there are times when it would be beneficial for us to act in a disgraceful, underhanded way. To practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. It would benefit us. And yet we have renounced those things. Why? Because we are in the kingdom of God. And under King Jesus, who never acted corruptly, but always acted justly, we too follow in his footsteps. Imagine living in a kingdom that's always seeking justice and never experiencing corruption. Doesn't that sound amazing? Doesn't your heart long for that? Is that not the type of kingdom that you want to live in? Is that not the king that you want to serve? Even if you're not a Christian this morning, I'm so glad that you're here. But even if you're not a Christian, could you not admit with me that that is a beautiful, beautiful picture. And that the deepest longings of your heart cry for just this. That we would be in a kingdom that is ruled with justice and corruption is never, never to be seen. There's another notice Another observation that I see, another way that Jesus' kingdom differs from all other kingdoms. The third point, Jesus' kingdom focuses on others instead of self. Jesus' kingdom focuses on others instead of self. You see, Pilate wasn't wrong. The chief priest had sentenced, sentenced Jesus to death out of envy. They, like Pilate, they wanted to keep their status. They were jealous of Jesus. They wanted to rule in his stead, as they had been. But now the king had returned. He was here. They wanted to keep their influence. And so operating out of spite, operating out of envy, they connived a way to kill Jesus while preserving their, old, their own self-interests. You see, the, their kingdom... It focused on self at the cost of others. It's true in Barabbas' kingdom. It's true in yours, king, your kingdom and my kingdom. It's true in the Sanhedrin's kingdom, but it's not true in Jesus' kingdom. It's quite the opposite. Again, we see some really stark irony here. They went out of their way to destroy a righteous man in order to protect themselves, and Jesus the righteous man had gone out of his way to die for his enemies. Let me say that again. The chief priests and the scribes, they went out of their way to destroy a righteous man in order to protect themselves. And Jesus, the righteous man, had gone out of his way to die for his enemies. Here's the uncomfortable part for all of us. If we are to be a part of this kingdom, if we're to be a part of this sort of kingdom, if we're to have Jesus as our king, the 
sort of king who puts his subject's interest before his own, how can we be in that kingdom and not do likewise? How can we? We can't. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The King of the Jews, the Son of Man, the Messiah, he came to serve and not be served. Pilate looks at everybody and says, how can I use this person to serve me? The chief priests and scribes, how can I use these people, this person and that person, to make sure that I get what I need? And Jesus says, no, not so with me and not in my kingdom. I will lay my life down to serve those who are unfortunate, to serve those who are in need, to serve those who need to be ransomed. So from the top down, Jesus' kingdom puts others before self. Do you remember the parable of the unforgiving debtor? Do you remember that parable? It hurts. It's beautiful. You really like that the guy, the bad guy, in the end of that, he kind of gets what's coming to him. He, 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 he was forgiven much and he didn't forgive the others. And so what happened to him? Well, he was thrown back in prison. It's a beautiful, wonderful story until we realize that we so often are the one who has been forgiven so much and yet we're not willing to extend that to others. We've been given so much but we're not willing often to give. We've been served and we're not willing to serve. We don't operate though in the kingdom of God under self-interest. But like our king, we operate in the interest and well-being of others. How are we to apply this text? How are we to apply this idea that Jesus, the king of the Jews, the king of the church, would lay his life down for his enemies while all other kingdoms and kings would do the exact opposite? How are we to apply that today in 2022 here in Hagerstown, in this church? We don't have to ask. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to come out with fancy illustrations or anything like that, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 8, tells us explicitly. And so if you're asking that question, the, the Holy Spirit inspired this text for you. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Hagerstown Church. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Nothing. Do nothing out of conceit. What? That's right. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Can you help me understand what that means in the Greek? Treat other people as more significant than you. This is what our king has done for us. And so what should the kingdom look like? It should look like his subjects treating the other subject, subjects as more significant than ourselves. He goes on to say, let each of you look not only to your own interests, to your own needs, but also to the interests and needs of others. He goes on to say, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who should be your model? Who is the template for this life? Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not 
count equality with, with God a thing to be grasped or to, held to, be hold to be held tightly and fought for. No, he emptied himself of his own self-interests. He took on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We'll find Jesus on shortly. In a way, though, it is understandable why Jesus was rejected as king by so many. The type of kingdom that he was speaking about, one that prioritizes the spiritual over the physical, it's just not that interesting without a regenerate heart. To give up the things that can be seen, to forgo them in an effort in hopes of obtaining something that cannot be seen, it's difficult. And without faith that comes through the reading and hearing of God's word and the spirit of God that regenerates and brings to life the heart that is dead within you, it's hard for us to really see prioritizing the spiritual over the physical. Same is true for operating with justice and rejecting corruption. That's difficult, especially when you're corrupt. It's so difficult once you've made those poor decisions, once you're part of the system to really blow the whistle that brings the whole thing down, is it not? And I'm not speaking about some government conspiracy here or abroad. I'm speaking of your own heart and life. We're just as corrupt as the next. And so without the, the work of the Spirit of God as we read in Ephesians 2, it's impossible for us to really see the appeal of justice over corruption. And for that matter, focusing on others instead of self. And yet we who are the church, we've not been left to only the physical. We've not been left to corruption. We've not been left to fend for ourselves and to be wrought with what we need in this life. No, we have been raised from the dead, so to speak. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that lives in us. That calls us to the spiritual. That calls us to justice. And calls us to serve others. It's a bright, shining light, is it not? So I think about the bright, shining light, shining into the darkness of evil, exposing evil for what it is. It's shocking and unnerving. And speaking of King Jesus, shining darkness into the light, or, or light into the darkness, I think of John chapter 1. John chapter 1. It says this, speaking of Jesus, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Their hearts were dead. Their eyes were blind. It says in verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The king of the Jews came to the Jews, the long-awaited Messiah, and they rejected him. They didn't receive him. Not only did they not give him the honor that was due, the honor that Jesus has in heaven, but they also rejected him. They rejected him. He 
came unto his own, and his own people did not receive him. But verse 12, it says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, the name of the good king, he gave them the right to become the children of God. He gave them the right to come into his kingdom. It says, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but they were born again into this kingdom by who? By God. Jesus, King Jesus came to his own. He came to the Jews and they rejected him. In fact, they delivered him over to the Gentiles to be murdered. Pilate asks an interesting question. Maybe you're asking the same. He says, what would you have me do with King Jesus? What would you have me do with him? Are you asking maybe that same question this morning from your heart? What should I do with King Jesus? Should I receive him or should I reject him? That's my prayer this morning, that we would receive King Jesus on earth, here in Hagerstown, just as he has received in heaven. That we would view him as the king, just as heaven views him as the king. Maybe you would not say you're a Christian this morning, but again, you have to admit with me that Jesus' kingdom, what's been described, what we've seen starkly defined here this morning is so much more beautiful than anything that you've ever experienced. And in fact, I would argue that your heart longs for this. Your heart betrays your mind. You want this. A king that doesn't abuse or mislead its subjects, but lays down its life, his very life. For his subjects. My question for you this morning is, will you receive Jesus as king? Oh, I pray that you would. If you've not before, look to Jesus and said, Jesus, I submit to your leadership in my life. I turn from my sin. I'm not the king anymore. I'll not father or follow and bow to other kings. I bow to you alone. If that's you here today, welcome to the kingdom. Turn from all other kings, false kings, and turn to the one true king this morning and accept him as the king in your life. The invitation is out there. I'd love to talk to you about that. I'd love to, to share. I'd love to pray with you. Talk more about what it looks like to enter into the kingdom, to be born into that kingdom by the will of God and not by your own will. I'd love to share that with you. But maybe you think yourself, oh, Jesus, I honor Jesus. I won't say anything bad about the guy. I won't pile on that he's a blasphemy, blasphemer. I won't pile on that he's done all these other things and, and he's just a terrible guy. I think Jesus to be a great person. Maybe that's you here today. And you'd say, I'll, I'll stand with Pilate. I'll not dishonor Jesus. But you won't take that next step and say, I will not honor, I'll not only honor Jesus, but I'll also honor him as king. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've looked to Jesus and you've asked for forgiveness of sins. But you've not truly, in a sense, made him the Lord of your life. You're not operating in the sense that he really is your king. Maybe, you don't, maybe your life doesn't look like King Jesus' life. 
And so maybe it's time in those areas that the Spirit of God is revealing to you in this moment to bring them into the submission of Christ, to bring him under the, his lordship. Maybe that's you here today. Christian, I pray that you honor King Jesus, and I pray that you receive him as your king in every area of your life. The main idea, again, may Jesus be received on earth as he is in heaven. I want to share one more thing about Jesus' kingdom, really, as we come to a close. The truth of the matter, that is, in Jesus' kingdom, he doesn't eat alone. He doesn't eat alone. You think back to the all the, the pictures that we see of, of kings eating. Usually the table is really long, whether it's a cartoon or some sort of a TV show. The table is long. It's covered with food, and there's few people there. Yet that's not the case with Jesus. King Jesus does not eat alone. No, King Jesus invites his subjects, whom he calls friends, whom he calls sons. He invites them to sit at his table and to dine with him. We who recognize and receive Jesus as king now are invited to his kingly table, the Lord's Supper. Amen. Let's pray. Father, again. Just turn our hearts to you now. Reminded that you are the God who delivers the oppressed. You love the just. And when we are unjust and we are oppressing, you offer us forgiveness. Father, the fact that you would send your son by way of demonstration of your great love for your church. And that while we were still sinning against you, while we were beasts towards you, your son, our king, laid his life down for us. So, Father, we thank you for that. We rejoice in that. We pray that you'd help us to never get over that. Instead, Father, that we would continually, continually have our hearts changed and affected by this great sacrifice. Father, not only that, but we pray that that would continue to work this change in our own hearts. That it wouldn't stop with us. But that your subjects, whom you call friends and sons and daughters, would begin to look more like our King every day. And Father, we pray that as we do that, this world, this city, would see how beautiful our King truly is. And that they too would come and kneel at his feet and receive from his table. Father, this is our prayer, this is our hope, and we ask all of these things in the name of our King and for his glory alone. Amen.